0: Hello, and welcome to Thinking Hard and Slow, the podcast of the Warren Institute of Philosophy. I'm Julian Baggini. There are innumerable podcasts offering bite-sized ideas and intelligent chat. Thinking Hard and Slow offers something a little different. The opportunity to settle down and listen to an extended philosophical lecture, followed by a discussion digging even deeper into it. All our guests are philosophers or related thinkers at the top of their games. Their brief is to talk to intelligent and curious listeners who may know nothing at all about their subject. Series 1 mainly features talks from this year's London Lectures on the theme of expanding horizons. We're both celebrating and promoting the ways in which academic philosophy in Britain and America has been broadening its scope in recent decades, engaging with other traditions around the world and new themes, and novel methods. Our first talk is by Leia Carmanson, Associate Professor and the Bhagwan Adinath Professor of Jain Studies at the University of North Texas. She is the co-author of A Practical Guide to World Philosophies and the author of Cross-Cultural Existentialism, of which the leading comparative philosopher Stephen Angle said, Leia Carmanson's work exemplifies what is best about the new wave of cross-cultural philosophising. Not content to merely compare ideas, she elegantly and insightfully weaves sources from Korea and China together with others from Europe and North America to challenge, enrich, and ultimately redirect existentialism. Her talk is titled How to Change Your Mind, The Contemplative Practices of Philosophy.
1: There is a great new book out titled Philosophy as a Way of Life. There's actually two books out with that same name, both just within the last year. And then, of course, this was also the title of the 1995 English language collection of the writings of Pierre Hadot, who in many ways is the one who revived this interest in philosophy as a way of life for our generation. Philosophers in this vein, look at, among other things, various practices of the ancient Greek philosophers like the Stoics or the Epicureans, some of which can be described as meditations, as spiritual exercises, that's Hado's term, as various structured contemplative methodologies aimed at self-betterment, self-cultivation, toward a way of being that's more rational, more reasonable, we might say, existentially content. This idea of philosophy as a way of life waxes and wanes at different points in the history of philosophy, but follows a trajectory that takes us to where we are today, where philosophy has become, some would say, somewhat pedantic, uh, focused often exclusively on logical analysis and argumentation perhaps overly concerned with thought experiments that are by design abstractions. And in any case, it's less immediately invested in this kind of holistic project of self formation and transformation. In the most recent book on the topic, so this is in the 2021 book, the authors say that the central founding premise of any approach to philosophy as a way of life is the claim that, quote, philosophical discourse through teaching and intellectual exercise can change people's deep set beliefs. At stake, as they say, is the philosopher's contention that human beings are rational animals and hence that rational contemplation is meaningfully transformative. Of course, um, some of you may know there's been some sobering data coming out on this recently. What's been called the backfire effect documents the tendency that we have to double down on our deeply held beliefs, especially when we are presented with facts, evidence, or good argumentation to the contrary. So in other words, when confronted with reasonable reasons why we might be wrong about something, we tend to believe even more strongly that we are right. Um, So I want to pursue this dilemma cross-culturally. In addition to the recent renewal of interest in philosophical, contemplative practices and philosophy as a way of life, there's, of course, also been calls for greater diversity in the philosophical sources that we engage. So today we will look at a number of philosophical practices, some rooted in the schools of ancient Greek philosophy, and others rooted in the scholarly academies of Song Dynasty China. We'll actually see a lot of similarities in the practices themselves, but we'll see some fundamental differences in the understanding of why those practices are effective. And if we dig down, this will take us to some fundamentally different assumptions about the world, what the world is, what the mind is, how it works, and what happens when we change it. So let me start with an example of The philosophical practice from the Greeks that I suspect we might all be the most familiar with, and that is dialogue, as in the famous Socratic dialogues written by Plato. When I teach these to undergraduates, I often have the students write an assignment in dialogue form. Plato uses a set of tools that I want my students to use. I want them to identify the unstated or hidden premises in others' arguments. I want them to identify gaps or mistakes in others' deductive logic, and I want them to understand the role of counterexamples and thought experiments in philosophical argumentation. Uh, The dialogue activity so communicates uh, to students what I think many philosophers would probably consider as the core value of philosophy as a discipline, this idea that it is a joint venture of people in conversation seeking the truth. Dialogue as a methodology was not unique to Socrates or unique to Plato because he had been a playwright. Uh, As Pierre Hadot, the French philosopher, has said, um, this question-and-answer style of self-examination is rooted in what he calls spiritual exercises that predate Socrates himself. This is a process that brings a person to confront her own uncertainties to unearth the contradictions in her own beliefs so as to develop the properly humble orientation toward truth, or better to say, the truth, the absolute truth that transcends the finite human condition. So the Socratic dialogue, when pursued to its end in its context, results in a kind of spiritual conversion on a path that aims at wisdom. In addition to this practice of dialogue, which does remain recognizably philosophical today, there were other practices that we don't routinely use in the discipline anymore or not as frequently. These include types of meditations. Um, For example, the Epicureans recommended a, a meditation to dispel the fear of death. We should contemplate, they say, contemplate for ourselves the time before we were born. And then we should feel for ourselves that our own non-existence prior to birth does not call up for us any feelings of anxiety. Thus, right, we can work to meditatively transfer this calm experience of our own non-existence to our anticipation of a future non-existence after death, right? So a meditation to dispel the fear of death. Some of these meditation exercises were linked to the practice of memorization, also not something we do as much in the discipline today. The idea here was to commit to memory, certain philosophical doctrines, and then to recall them to the mind in a contemplative mode. This was a kind of training. You want to internalize the doctrines in an intentional way, in a calm moment, so that when everyday life confronts you with stresses and anxieties, tragedies and sorrows, you will be prepared to apply your learning, your philosophical learning on the spot. And what were some of the kinds of doctrines that you might memorize? For the Stoics, Neoplatonists and others, these could be, these were often reminders to practice detachment from the vicissitudes of mortal life and to align ourselves instead with the true and unchanging nature of ultimate reality. For the Neoplatonists, this ultimate reality was the unchanging cosmic unity on which our world of diversity depends. For the Stoics, it was often some sort of, maybe we could say, material conception of God or a God principle as the animating intelligence that structures the cosmic body of which we're all a part. This is what I meant when I said earlier that if we look at the practices and then we we, we dig down into the philosophical practices of the Greeks, we'll eventually come up against the, these beliefs about the world and what the world is, what the mind is, and what happens when we change it. So let's looking back at this definition of philosophy that's still up, a joint venture of people in conversation seeking the truth, this gives us a picture of philosophy that I will say ultimately is static and purpose-driven. It's static in the sense, what I mean by that, is, it's the analytical breakdown of arguments and assertions. It's a process of analysis, and this is a process that's not open-ended, but it does have a stopping point. And so it's purpose-driven for that same reason, which is to say we're progressing toward a fixed goal, a judgment, a judgment of truth. We can see now... This is still in line with certain foundational beliefs about the fixed, unchanging nature of truth and reality in in a very classic Greek sense. We can also see that obviously there can be winners and losers here. Right? Some of us may take the dialogical journey of philosophy to find out at some point along the way that we're wrong about something. And we don't need to be experts in human psychology to know that people don't, don't like to be wrong. This is why we have the backfire effect that I talked about earlier, this idea that argumentation can can cause us to get defensive, to double down on what we believe. Uh, And this this is the heart of my my discussion today, this idea that we have to practice, we have to condition ourselves not to resist the force of rationality. Uh, We have to tame those emotions that cause us to get defensive. We have to cultivate that reverence truth, for reality that humbles us, that coaxes us when needed to concede that we are wrong. And so this is why in my mind philosophy has to be a way of life. It has to be the whole package because argumentation alone won't be effective if we are not constitutionally and emotionally prepared for the truth-driven process of argumentation. And here, what I'm saying actually goes a little bit against the grain of the Greek approach to philosophy as a way of life so the stoics here in in this quote in a debt to socrates did believe that contradiction was its own pain right and that we naturally do not abide it socrates knew this is a quote socrates knew that if a rational soul be moved by anything show the governing faculty of reason a contradiction and it will renounce it So my concern here, right, is that we actually do need a little bit more. We need a little bit more priming before we're so sensitive to this so-called pain of contradiction. And this is why I want to turn now to a different cultural context, but to a set of similar practices with a similar goal in mind, which is to say, helping us become the kinds of people who can change our minds. Our frame here is Song Dynasty, China. The setting is the scholarly culture of the academies associated with the tradition that we call Confucianism, but this is actually a a misleading translation. It it suggests that the historical figure of Confucius, Master Kong, is the founder of it. Um, But really, he was a member of the lineage or the family of the root. This is a term that's translated as scholar or literati. The lineage predates the life of Confucius. The Ru were members of China's educated elite. They were often employed as educators or government officials. They were well-versed in the classic scholarly and literary texts, and they were qualified to preside over various state rites and civic ceremonies, as well as the rituals performed at ancestral shrines. So, I use an, an alternative English word, Ruism, instead of Confucianism. And without getting too deep into a digression on the topic of what we count as philosophy today and what we don't these days, um, I think we can say that when we talk about Ruism, we are talking about scholarship as a way of life. Scholarship in this context was understood as investigating things and extending knowledge. These are key terms uh, from the Sung Dynasty academic sort of methodologies. The investigation of things, investigating things, did have connotations historically of empirical inquiry into the natural world, um, but it was most closely associated with book learning and scholarly study. This was reading the classics, reading the histories, reading all the many commentaries on the classics and the histories, in order to perceive certain patterns or tendencies in the way things go. This, again, can be patterns about the natural world, it could be seasonal cycles and their effects on agriculture. But the focus was more often on political, social, and moral affairs. So patterns or tendencies in human behaviors, in human aspirations and endeavors, in our successes and failures. These help us understand optimal ways of being in the world and being together, and also help us to analyze the causes uh, when things go wrong. All of these patterns were indeed connected in that understanding an imbalance, for example, in an agricultural context, can indeed help us understand the nature of imbalances in a social context, in a medical context regarding bodily health, which is to say that grasping patterns and tendencies in one area can be extended and applied to others, and that's the extension of knowledge. So investigating things and extending knowledge. But before we can do any of this, before we can observe anything or read anything or extend what we know, we have to prepare the mind to learn. Um, We have to calm it down. The famous Sung Dynasty philosopher Zhu Xi says, now, if you want to read books, you must first settle the mind to make it like still water or a clear mirror. And how do we do this? Usually this is accomplished by a brief period of quiet sitting and calm breathing before you even open up a book. And at that point, reading itself, again, in the academic context of the Song Dynasty, reading itself was not so much an endeavor aimed at intellectual understanding, although, intellectual understanding is one outcome of reading, but reading was an active, audible practice of recitation. Next quote here from Shi. The value of a book is in reciting it. By reciting it often, we naturally come to an understanding. So you can see there's a kind of inevitability that he assumes to intellectual insight, right? That the brain will respond to the words of a text in certain predictable patterns and tendencies, and we just need to let the process play out. Jushi often refers to dynamics like vibration, resonance, harmonization. He advises that we open our minds to the way a text itself resonates, He even suggests that we might sit still and hum, kind of as a way to tune up the mind for reading. So this is the last quote here. Uh, Scholars, when reading books, must collect themselves and sit up straight, relax their gaze and hum softly, empty the mind and fully immerse themselves. So we can see here now that in making the mind like still water or a clear mirror, We are not rendering it simplistically passive or simply passively receptive, but we are rendering it responsive. We are sensitizing it to the dynamics of the content that we're studying as it passes through our lips in recitation. I've said twice now that if you dig down into certain philosophical practices that you'll eventually find certain assumptions about the way the world works that help undergird why these practices are believed to be effective. And you may be seeing now from these quotes that we just saw from Ju Xi that clearly there are some assumptions here about what the mind is, how it operates, uh, that we need to know a little bit more about in order to best appreciate what's going on with these Song Dynasty contemplative scholarly methodologies. To take us back to the Greeks for a moment, to recall the important assumptions we saw there, included the idea that human beings are uniquely rational, that that is at the core of what it means to be human, and that proceeding via reasoning takes us toward the eternal truth, the unchanging reality, the foundation of all existence. In the Chinese context, you'll also see the assumption that human beings are rational, but not uniquely rational. In different sources, animals are described as having some capacity for rational understanding. So they're seen as being able to reason their way through certain tasks or out of certain dilemmas or just having a basic capacity to be methodical or logical uh, in planning ahead to do things. So without digressing too far on that, it's at least safe to say that Whatever the human mind accomplishes via investigating things and extending knowledge, this is not completely explainable simply due to our capacity for rational thought, because again, animals share that. Secondly, in the Chinese context, we will see a different understanding of sort of the nature of what's ultimately real and what that means for human living. I'm going to take us into a brief digression here on relevant Chinese theories regarding the nature and origins of the cosmos. And this will not get too technical, because really, Ruist Ruist, or Confucian cosmology runs something like this. There, there was some stuff, and one day something happened. So that there was some stuff, and one day something happened. But let's break that down a little bit more. In common origin stories in various texts, Usually there is speculated to be first some primal state. Uh, it can be described, it, ha- it is described variously as supreme, as limitless, as chaotic. Some will talk of it in terms of words that could mean void or absence or emptiness. This tends to be the Taoist approach. In the Confucian or Ruist context, They will usually speak of voidness or absence or emptiness as descriptors of the primal state that has not yet been differentiated into one thing or another. So it's void of form, right? Or it's absent any distinction or it's empty of things. In that sense, the primal state is often referred to as primordial qi, yuan qi. Qi is a very important term here. Which we'll talk about um, in the Song Dynasty, it becomes a philosophical concept for speaking of reality, of existence itself, as well as individually existing things. Here is a quote from a contemporary philosopher, Ji Lu Lo. She she calls this, she refers to this as qi realism. In her work, she pursues what she calls a qi based realism, um, which she describes as quote. Qi is permanent and ubiquitous in the world of nature. There's nothing over and above the realm of Qi. Qi is real in virtue of its causal power. It constitutes everything and is responsible for all changes. In this sense, English translations of Qi usually try to capture the fact that it can refer to both matter and energy. It can refer to physical things, but also to intangible things like thoughts and emotions or spiritual things, capturing what the Ruists thought of, to, thought of as the spiritual aspects of people. So transla- translations of qi might uh, include terms like psychophysical stuff, lively material, vital stuff. I like to think of the primal qi, the yun qi, as an as a, as a undifferentiated matter-energy matrix, right, that is not yet divided into either matter or energy or anything at all as a kind of pure potency. So back to our cosmology, there was some stuff, and in its initial phase, that stuff was inchoate, formless. There were not yet individually existing things. And then one day something happened. The most common explanation for what happened uh, is that the stuff spontaneously erupted into the polar aspects of yin and yang, right? This is uh, the common sort of yin-yang duality that I think has made its way into the English language, one side understood often as heavy. These are understood as pairs like heavy and light or condensed and dispersed or coarse and refined. Qi will behave recursively in that it will interact with itself in its various configurations to produce more and more complex manifestations of stuff. So once you've got this initial distinction into yin and yang, in short order, you've got lots of stuff. You've got the earth and the cosmos as we know it, all the myriad things of our everyday lives. So here, we we can come back around to what the Ruists meant to do when they would sit and clear their minds before reading texts or studying. In particular, we come around to the idea that the primal chi is not just a feature of our cosmological origins, but it is, it is a force that remains with us in the present. In other words, all existing stuff emerges from undifferentiated chi. Whether we are talking about the first stuff at the inception of the cosmos or all the myriad things around us now that continue to live out in the present, ongoing processes of materialization, and persistence, and eventual disintegration. Meditation is that practice that allows the mind, the human mind, to relax into its primal, formless state. This is a process that is described as healthy, refreshing, invigorating. It renews us from this exercise in relaxation, in settling the mind, we draw down on that primal potency that is this ever-present source of new forms, new ideas that allows us to call forth those more refined thoughts and emotions that in the Chinese context mark the wisdom of the sage. Let me be clear here at this point that this is not a willful or ego-driven activity. This is not a willful or ego-driven creativity. And by that, I mean that the goal of Ruist meditation is really to get our own egos out of the way. It's to stay ahead of our ordinary thoughts and emotions so that we're not overtaken by them. Through philosophical practice, we can, however, provide the right conditions in our own sort of mental ecologies through which this power of as-yet-unformed Chi, the sort of raw power of the real, can express itself through us in its own natural tendency to manifest form. And this, if anything, distinguishes the human from the animal in the Chinese context. We are a partner in the cosmic project of reality. Or in the words of one passage from the classic, the Book of Rites, in the world, only people of utmost integrity are able to make the most of themselves those who can make the most of themselves are then able to make the most of others. Those who can make the most of others are then able to make the most of things. Those who can make the most of things are then able to assist the cosmos and the Earth in their transforming and creating. Those who can assist the cosmos and the Earth in their transforming and creating can then join with them as a triad." Quote. This is the triad of the cosmos, the Earth, and the human. Uh, in Rua's thought, it is the, it is the one who pursues scholarship, scholarship as a way of life, that attains this uniquely human capacity to be a partner in shaping the continued flux of reality. Earlier, we mentioned an understanding of philosophy as progression toward that eternal, unchanging reality that underlies the world of temporary things that we ordinarily inhabit. And we mentioned that the contemplative practices of the Greeks help us orient our minds along that path. Right? The practices are effective because that is the path. In contrast, here in the Chinese tradition, we're going to find a picture of philosophy that's perhaps more productive, creative, and open-ended. It's dynamic in the sense that we mean the active conditioning of the mind to prime it for learning. These contemplative methodologies were central to the path of scholarship in this Chinese context. Here, critical thinking is not absent, but it is a baseline minimum needed to avoid certain basic errors and reasoning. Beyond this baseline, philosophy is about conditioning and transforming the mind through scholarly discipline. For that same reason, then, it's open-ended, right? The goal of philosophical learning is good living, this is framed in terms of a heightened state of flexibility, or as a capacity for appropriate responsiveness in unfamiliar situations. And it's in this, right, it's not that our rationality puts us in touch with sort of pre-given eternal truths, but it is that our own dynamic creativity is part of the ongoing process of realizing things in this very moment. Like with the Greeks, this process is thought to cultivate in us the kind of humbleness that makes changing our minds possible. It's not a humbleness born of awe before that eternal truth that transcends our understanding, as we might say for the Greeks, but it is a humbleness born of an acceptance of the flux of things, right? An acceptance that we do need to be ready to let go of what we think we know at a moment's notice, because rapidly changing conditions often don't wait for us to catch up. Now, I I promised you two different accounts of what it means to change your mind, uh, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if some people here feel at the end that maybe either option is still overly optimistic uh, or maybe naive, right? Is it is it naive to think that there is a greater truer reality out there other than the one we're currently experiencing? Is it is it naïve to think that contradiction is all that painful anymore for people? Uh, or if we pose these questions to the Confucians, to the Ruists, is it naïve to think that reading books really has this power over the mind that they think that it does? Is it naïve to think that a meditation practice, you know, actually puts us in touch with primal cosmic forces? Some days, I do feel far from optimistic in all this, Um, but I have been inspired by the Ruist approach to learning and changing the mind, which doesn't really appeal to our capacity for intellectual deliberation so much as it almost bypasses it, right? Trying to give us tools to train our minds well despite our own tendencies toward what the Chinese tradition will call uh, pettiness or small-mindedness. At the end of his essay on spiritual exercises, Pierre Hadot says that he will be satisfied if his work encourages us to appreciate a few old truths and the necessity of reading for ourselves the old books that contain them.
0: I'll kick off with some some questions of my own, if I may. I mean, first of all, going back to the early, early part of the talk, the idea that one needs to prepare oneself to read and to do philosophy by doing some quite practical things, such as you know sitting and, and, and breathing properly. Of course, you know people who are a bit familiar with Indian philosophy uh, will will recognise that. That's a, a part there. It seems to be that in non-Western traditions, that's quite a common kind of thing. It's rather absent. I can't remember ever being told to do anything physically to prepare for, for my reading. I wonder if you just had any thoughts about, are there things students are taught to do before they read or anything? And um, is the absence of this kind of practice, or, or, do, do you think it tells us anything about what we might have been getting wrong in, in Western philosophy? What are we missing here? Or does it betray some kind of blind spot that we don't think this is necessary?
1: That's a a great question. I know from friends of mine who have young children in the school systems here here in the US, there actually is a bit more kind of mindfulness strategies being taught. Buddhist style meditation in particular has really been picked up within the contemporary mindfulness movement uh, worldwide. It's used in more therapeutic settings as well. And so I do think we give children maybe a little bit more of that, certainly than I got just within the school system. And you're very right to say that these are very sort of everyday and commonsensical things, right? Of course, if I need to sit down and learn something, if my mind is racing and I'm rushing around and I'm thinking about other things and I'm anxious about other things that I'm not going to read and appreciate the book in the way that I would if I sit down for a second and and sort of calm myself before starting. I just gave my students an exam just a couple of days ago and the very first question I put on it, you know, if you like, before you start the exam itself, why don't you just sit still for a second and take three deep breaths and I'll give you a point for doing it, right? It was a little bit of a freebie extra credit moment for them on the exam. And I actually forgotten that I'd put that on the exam. And so I'm sitting in the classroom and they had just started. And I hear this round in the room of students saying, thank you. Thank you for that first question. And it took me a second to remember that I'd done that. I told them to, to take a few deep breaths. But I do find that students in my classes where we're learning about Buddhism or we're learning about Chinese philosophy, we're learning about Jain practices, Hindu practices, other practices like this, they really are appreciative that someone takes the time to remind them that they too can try to implement these things in their own lives, in their own context, even just taking an exam in a classroom. And so... Yeah, it's hard for me to know how to answer if I think there's something more ideologically driven behind the absence of these kinds of techniques in contemporary, you know, early childhood education and certainly in graduate school. I mean, you know, right, we're not often given these kinds of tools or in undergraduate philosophy programs. Part of me wants to say that it's sort of symptomatic of just the larger busyness that we all labor under these days, um, maybe especially in academia, that we really... We really don't feel like we have time to sit and read the way that we might like to. But I think you're very right that if we sort of remind ourselves that our own scholarly lives will be so much more rich and maybe effective if we practice these sorts of things on a more regular basis, that it's uh, it's something I think, you know, sort of easy to incorporate. And once someone points it out to you, you do think like, oh, yeah, like, obviously I should be doing this. I should obviously calm down and breathe deeply before I... Try to read philosophy, uh, but it does take someone pointing out explicitly that this is a good thing to do. That's why I love Jushi. I love that particular uh, time period from the Sung Dynasty when these kinds of techniques were, were being employed in pedagogical contexts.
0: I mean just to sort of follow this, this through a bit because I guess it's difficult to put a ignore in the sense, but one, one thing that you know, Hado talks about and, and you're talking about as well, is there's a conception of philosophy which has this kind of holistic purpose. It's really about living well and it's about becoming a better person. So there's a kind of a moral dimension to it. It's about, you know, it's about improving the self in a very profound sense. Mm-hmm. And I, I I just wonder whether that sort of got very much lost in the Western tradition, where the 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 view is what, all you need to do philosophy well is to you know f- follow the arguments wherever they lead, as people quote Plato is to have that kind of th- those reasoning skills and apply yourself and the idea that you need to kind of work on if you like your your attitudes or your state of mind to do good good philosophy seem seems to be absent and I don't know if you I don't know if you agree with that. Is that entirely a bad thing or does it reflect certain perhaps good things about the discipline as well? I'm not sure
1: right, right. I have a lot of sort of thoughts and questions about that myself. I do think that part of what's interesting about Hadot's work is that he is trying to remind us that even for Socrates and Plato, it it was not entirely about the intellectual exercise or that the intellectual aspect of the exercise was just one aspect, but that there was this more holistic dimension. It, it, It obviously had Plato's entire sort of project obviously had both social and political aims. Um, it was very uh, uh, public-facing in that sense, and it was aimed at at changing uh, not just individual lives but social lives for as the better. I also, yeah, I also feel in general that. Today, when we try to revive this sense of philosophy as a way of life, and this is where I sort of get difficult in terms of what I'm trying, trying to say here, I do begin to feel like I start to walk lines in the classroom that get a little difficult to walk or the boundaries in the classroom get a little blurry because there is a sense in which in the contemporary space of institutionalized academia, I, I don't know how comfortable I am in any way, taking responsibility for my students' moral self-development. I mean, we are really talking about a much more hands-on type of education here. And that's certainly how the early Greeks, I believe, perceived what they were doing. I mean, these were, these were Uh, practices. They were trying to attract people to their schools because they thought that teaching people these practices would help them become better people. And I do, I think all of us in the philosophy classroom think in the long run, we're helping our students become better people. Um, I think that critical thinking and critical distance, um, the kind of abstract thinking and distancing from issues that logical analysis gives you is itself character building. Then I think we tend to forget that. It is itself a practice. I think what I was bringing out today and i think what you're picking up on in this question is that getting yourself to that point where you're even willing to engage in that practice and to follow it through in the way that certainly plato thought you should you know following the argument to the point following the dialogue to the point at which you really have a bit of a crisis in your own thinking for 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 plato right you really come up against the uncertainties that you are maybe in other ways trying to shield yourself yourself against by professing what you think you know. So I do think that critical thinking and the way that it's done in contemporary academic philosophy really is its own kind of character building exercise. And, and, and we can also recall that. But when you mention the more holistic side of this process, on the one hand, I, I want to, you know, loudly and confidently say, yes, you know, we should reclaim our role as these kinds of, I don't know what to call it, right, if we use Hado words, these kinds of spiritual advisors in the classroom, us, you know, philosophy teachers, that, you know, we really do want to reclaim that more dynamic, holistic version of philosophy as a way of life. And part of me, I do. And then I'm standing in front of a room full of 30 some odd 19-year-olds feeling quite ill-equipped to be anyone's, you know, spiritual guide or 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 moral guide. And I bring this up with my students. You know, when I teach this material, I sort of remind them, you know, think about what I'm asking you to do here or think about, I usually try to put it off on the people we're reading. Think about what Juxi is asking you to do here. Uh, He is asking you to consider your own moral cultivation. He's asking you to consider your own spiritual cultivation and think about what that means for you in the context of becoming educated. And is this really the appropriate thing for us to be doing in this context in class? So I think, again, there's just a lot. It's it's easy to talk the talk, I think, when it comes to thinking about reviving philosophy as a way of life. But when you're actually in the classroom doing it, you find that you're immediately in a much more personal relationship with the students. Um, And in some ways, I think we've been trained to set appropriate boundaries with our students. And so it it immediately, again, it it draws me into a lot of these situations where I'm constantly having to question and think about what the activities I do in class mean for me as a professor, bringing that into an academic context in in the institutional space of a university today.
0: When you talk about that discomfort of playing any kind of role as a moral teacher, I can certainly see that because I think that in the English-speaking world in particular, there's, there was at some time an absolute rejection of anything that would smack of that. You know, we're not gurus, we're not teachers. In a way, partly because, I, I think partly it's because philosophy wanted to be have equal esteem with science and it wanted that objectivity and it's not, not about the person. I think in certain parts of continental Europe, there's been perhaps more of an intermediate position. There's a lovely story told to me by Michael Dummett once of a graduate student who went to work with... Husserl and he sort of knocked on the professor's door and introduced himself and you know, I said I'm, I'm your new student and uh, Husserl went away came back with this pile of books and just handed it to them and said these are my works. <laughs> the idea of studying at the feet of the teacher is, is clearer there. There are good and bad aspects of that. One reason you might feel uncomfortable with it or if you don't why some people might feel uncomfortable with it is that we really have very deeply we're very steeped in this idea that education is, is very fundamentally about the in, independent thought and it's, it's student-focused. And so any kind of hint of, you know, even hierarchy perhaps and learning from and following in footsteps, it seems to undermine that sense of autonomy and, and, and thinking for yourself. So, I mean, there are a few things. I'll invite you to pick up what you'd like to on there. The extent to which is the kind of tradition you're talking about in any way antithetical to to thinking for yourself, for example.
1: The first thing I'll I'll respond to is this idea of thinking for yourself, and that does come out with some explicit theoretical resources in the Chinese tradition for thinking about how selfhood is an attainment, the capacity for autonomy is an attainment. These may be things that maybe within what we think of as the Western tradition are, have come to be seen as integral to what it means to be a human, that we are you know, rational, autonomous beings. But there's much more, I think, again, sort of theoretical resources for talking about the attainment of the self, the attainment of the autonomous individual as a development, as something that you develop through a process of education as you move into adulthood in that context. So in that sense, I think thinking for yourself is obviously still valued, but in the same way I, I was saying that we often need a little bit more priming in order to feel the pain of contradiction or a little bit more training in order to be open to rational dialogue as a process that when we're looking at, and again, at the, the Sung Dynasty academies and their approach to education, we need a lot of help a lot of training and development in order to become autonomous individuals and to, in order to claim that freedom of thought for ourselves. Um, so that, it, that too is seen as a process that needs to be nurtured and there need to be tools that we use along the way, right? We don't begin with sprinting, right? We begin with more foundational exercises and we work up to more robust exercises in this kind of journey toward autonomous selfhood and well-cultivated individuality in that context. One other thing that I was thinking of as you as you brought that question up was also the sort of the, of course, the, the divide between religion and the state in contemporary political systems and the assumptions about the difference between religion and philosophy as these have come to be understood. And that's another line that I think gets murky in the classroom when you start to bring in practices like this, am I asking the students to engage in religious practices, right? So whenever I, even if I have them sit quietly or or try to experience uh, a meditation style for themselves, I, I put that on the table and I give them the option but I always give them a backup assignment for those that don't want to engage in that practice because for some students that is a religious practice and it would go against their own religious beliefs in order to, in order to engage in it. And so there, there's ways in which, again, that also becomes a line that I find difficult to walk sometimes. And I've asked my students this, you know, I rarely have any students take me up on the option um, to take the alternative assignment. And I've said to them, I said, you know, what if I, and I was thinking of a Catholic practice, uh, Lectio Divina, which is this kind of contemplative prayerful reading. I said, you know, what if I set you down with the Bible and, and we're taking a class on Christianity and I asked you to engage the Bible in this way, contemplative prayerful reading, to commune with, you know, the, the, the ideas, communing with sort of the divine spirit through the reading. I said, is, you know, w- can you tell me what the difference is between me asking you to do that and me sitting you down with Jushi? And telling, you know, and, and Jushi's talking about aligning the mind with cosmic principle when you read, you know, what, what's the difference between me telling you to do some quiet sitting and then read Jushi in order to experience for yourself what he's telling you about what the mind can do when it's primed to read properly, and me again, sitting you down with the Bible and telling you to, to read in a contemplative prayerful mode in order to experience for yourself what some will say the mind can do in that context. Uh, with the divine spirit so for me those are very murky areas to be in the students usually they're like oh it's completely different you know what you're doing with us in chinese philosophy class is completely different so they usually are happy to go along with it but i don't think it's completely different right i i Mm. have my own i have my own misgivings about what that means in the classroom
0: that's interesting i thought perhaps they'd say they wouldn't mind doing that either because you know i mean you don't have to kind of become a catholic to, to try catholic practice, I don't think. I think the extent to which philosophers do become emotionally attached to their ideas is something which is underappreciated in philosophy, because it's kind of almost a taboo to say it, because we're supposed to be following arguments, not feelings. This kind of leads to a question we've also got from Sarah uh, Mattis, who says, thanks, Leah, and would be curious. I'd be curious to hear more about how Ruist practices might intervene in backfire problems, you know, this kind of resistance we have to things and how our emotions can, can perhaps keep us attached. And also a, a, a related to different point, also more about how you see questions of textual authority playing into these issues. So perhaps, perhaps you can ask, deal with that first one about the backfire. Just remind us what this backfire is and, and how you think the Confucian practices Ruist practices might help.
1: Right, this, this was my worry, my own worry. Thank you, Sarah, for the question. That was my own worry at the end of the talk, of course, is that both of the, both of the things I'd explored end up sounding pretty optimistic in the end um, and wondering for myself, which one was, would really be more effective. So the backfire effect is this, it's, it's sort of documented in recent, recent psychological literature uh, and, and sort of political polling literature, right? This idea that when people are confronted with facts and evidence that contradict their deeply held beliefs, Uh, especially when the facts and evidence are compelling and seemingly irrefutable, we will double down, right? We will reject that evidence to the contrary of what we believe even more strongly. And this caused obviously some sort of anxieties amongst people about how will we ever get out of the current political situation that we're in, this very divisive political landscape, if we're unable to speak against the divide in a way that doesn't trigger this kind of defensiveness and I do think, I think in the same way that you have to be primed in order to even engage in rational dialogue, I think you also have to be primed in order to think that sitting quietly and resting your mind, it may be through a meditation practice is also something you need to be convinced is worthwhile to do. So I, I think on both sides, we face that, that initial dilemma, right? That this is something that we may or may not, depending on our personal backgrounds and experiences come to you readily. But I do think that let's just take the Socratic method as the point of departure here. It's quite combative. You know, you read the interactions between Socrates and, and the people with whom he is speaking. And it's uh, they're sort of put on the spot. They're put on the spot um, and they're made to feel foolish sometimes. Right. And so it's it's immediately the process of rational question and answer in that sort of classically Socratic style, and even more than Socrates, but let's say the way that's picked up as the kind of Socratic method of questioning today, right? In a philosophy classroom or in a law school classroom, very combative, right? It's a kind of a demonstration of skill, you know, this kind of battle of wits. And I think that that alone immediately, obviously, you know, I think, again, you don't have to be an expert in human psychology to know that that can trigger defensiveness right out of the gate. So I do think that the Ruist approach, which doesn't move directly to logical debating, although, of course, that becomes part of it, eventually, that, that tradition too, Argues uh, and, and and there's argumentation across different schools and, and debates about which methods and doctrines are are better, but I think that the approach that that speaks immediately to the kind of mind body experience of meditation maybe has a greater chance of succeeding with people if they're again if they're brought to the point where they think that that's a worthwhile thing to do in the first place, but that that as a type of character building or self conditioning that helps the self become the kind of self that can change its mind. That maybe the approach that that tells me to sit down and just breathe deeply for a few moments and relax has a better chance of success than someone coming at me like Socrates in the square, you know, trying to prove everything I think I believe is wrong, or that I'm wrong about everything I think I believe. So I do think that that uh, is one maybe one reason I lean toward hope, hoping, right? Optimistically hoping that the combative model would actually be less effective. And, and this question is from uh, Sarah Matthias, and I will say she's the author of an excellent book on combat models and philosophies. So if anyone's sort of interested on the heritage of that particular model, that's something that, that's out there. And then in terms of textual, I actually wasn't quite sure where the second part of the question was going, but there is a sense in which for, Ruists like Juxi, we aren't immediately engaging texts in order to evaluate them rationally or, or in order to argue with them, right? We are engaging texts that have a certain kind of, and I'm invoking Hado here, you know, using this word spiritual, I think, which I think sometimes is as off the table as admitting as a philosopher that I have feelings about anything. But I think that um, the kind of uh, spiritual authority that the text has is something that you accept, especially when you're talking about foundational texts in the Chinese tradition, like the five classics, the four books, these kinds of core texts. Zhu Xi does say eventually that you need to read everything. You need to read the classics, you need to read the commentaries, you need to read the histories. And eventually he says you even start reading vulgar things. And by that, it just means like popular literature, right? So that you do read broadly. And, and the more broad your reading becomes, the more you should be prepared to be critical in your engagement with what you read and to maybe argue back with people uh, that you're reading. So again, it's this process of development where you start out, though, very much not criticizing the text in what we would consider in a contemporary philosophical way, sort of arguing back with the text, but really learning from the classics, um, learning from uh, the four books, because they do have this spiritual authority. And then beyond that though, we do eventually move beyond, it's not just a kind of a hierarchical authority, you know, authority-based model for learning. Eventually you do develop your own, again, you develop your own autonomous critical thinking skills and your own personal perspective as a well-developed individual. And at that point you are moving beyond the authority of the texts that you're engaging. You are exerting authority over texts in some cases than in that case. And I think that might be where the second part of Sarah's question was going.
0: I think what you're saying about this tradition of treating foundational texts as though they were kind of sacred, not to be questioned, is something that you also find, of course, in, in the orthodox schools of, of Indian philosophy and, and in other non-Western traditions. And the whole point about this series is expanding horizons. And as, as we've seen, a lot of people are open to that now. But for those people who have always been suspicious of, of Western philosophy, getting involved with non-Western philosophy, I think that's that's one of the things that really touches a nerve with them and makes them think, well, how can it even be philosophy if this is your sort of deferential attitude to text, you know? And and surely you you come out firing. So, you know, here from day one, you know, the, the classic Philosophy 101 course, in lesson one is using Descartes' as target practice, you know? <laughs> um, it's, it's ripped to shreds the arguments. Of one of, here's one of the greatest philosophers in our history and here's all the reasons why he was wrong kind of thing so i don't know what when, when you may maybe people have said that to you and challenged you What's your kind of reply when people say you're talking deference you're talking you know that's just not philosophy. how can it be
1: right that's a great question I, I work in Asian philosophical traditions so i've sort of always been on in in this position of sometimes having to explain why what i why I work in a philosophy department not in a religious studies department um, uh, for example, but I do think that maybe to go back to the point, I guess I've been circling around to a few times now, which is interesting to think about in this context, I've actually never quite thought about it in this way. But if we're, we, we did talk about humbleness as something that's needed in order to even recognize the force that rationality may lay claim on, right? Or like may put on you, right? That the sort of the claim that rationality may make on you as a person, right? that when you are confronted with a contradiction to feel that sense in which, yes, right now I must acquiesce, right? I have been confronted with a contradiction in my own thought. I now, you know, I seed, right? And and, and I I will now re-examine my beliefs and, and, and resolve that contradiction. That does require some humility and some humbleness. And so I think just, and this might be sidestepping the larger issue you're asking me about, But I think that pedagogically speaking, the academies in the Song Dynasty weren't starting out with authoritative text for no reason. Right, because there is a sense in which by the time that you get to the point that you're reading text in a critical way and you're debating with the text and you're arguing with the text, you need to have a lot of training under your belt, right? And so this idea that beginning with texts that help you adopt an attitude of humility before you move on to texts that invite you to argue a little bit more with them, that pedagogically that could be effective. And to, to use the example of Descartes in the classroom or other, you know, great works of philosophy, and a student has only read, you know, the first five pages, and they come out of the gate with these arguments as to why it's completely wrong. Right. And some of us want to say, wait, hold on, you know, one moment. Let's first wrap our heads around what this person is trying to say. Let's restate the argument in its most positive light, you know, let's give to the argument all that we can give before we come around to deciding that we disagree with it. Because sometimes students will jump immediately to kind of this, um, you know, relishing this moment to kind of tear the argument down. And I do think again, pedagogically, beginning with texts that asked for you some deference, does start you off with a, in a position of humility that maybe is something we lack in f- philosophical training today, right? So maybe my answer, again, that's sort of sidestepping that larger question of whether that's philosophy or, you know, I think the classic distinction in some ways between philosophy and theology is this idea that there's a foundational text or not. Right. Something is taken as kind of axiomatic or not. Um, but I begin now that I'm thinking about it and saying all this out loud, I begin to think that maybe there's something to be said just from a pedagogical perspective of the utility of starting out with a kind of more deferential attitude toward the text, even that we engage Um and I think that also maps on, you know, you sort of talked about continental European philosophy here. I think that was, this also maps on to hermeneutic, hermeneutic strategies. I'm thinking of people like Gadamer here, right, who asked for this more deferential attitude toward text at first before engaging the critical mode. So I think there's, there's some wisdom, I think, in that, some wisdom and deference um, to our texts.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I think there's sort of the culture we've got, you say, a certain race to it. And... Um... It's so difficult because when something's so natural and part of the, the background of your sort of educational history and, and the culture, it can seem so obviously the right thing to do. And I think, in contrast, what you're describing sounds, say, deferential and so forth. And yet, perhaps it's not so difficult to see the virtues of it. I'm thinking, for example, because I think this is not just about philosophy, actually, isn't it? The broader culture. So, for example, in Japan, if you want to become a great sushi chef, just say something like that nothing to philosophy. Well. Mm-hmm. Actually, in Japan, it does have a lot to do with philosophy, bats. But, you know, as an apprentice, you might, I saw a documentary, this wonderful documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Two years making the egg sushi, right? Two years of the same thing, because in order to get really good, you have to pay your dues and practice. Now, that's something that I don't think I would have been prepared to do, having grown up with my sense of endless possibilities in Western things. But I can certainly see the value of it. And maybe in education too, you know. Because there is independence of thought in the end, isn't there, as you've said. It's just that you're not expected to sort of like race to it. So I can perhaps see that that's, that is very, very interesting. I did want to ask something else about the um, meditative practices there. Because when you're describing the, the rationale behind the stilling of the mind, you use the, the, the cosmology and the idea of there being the, the, the primal, Um, State And in a sense, when we're calming the mind, we're getting our mind into that primal state. Now, that was really, really interesting. But I I assume we don't have to buy into that cosmology to see the value of it. Is that just a little bit of interesting historical background to a practice that we just found out works? Or do you think there's something in that way of conceptualizing it, which is helpful and important?
1: It was a little bit of historical background. It was also a little reflective of some of my own ongoing interests that I didn't bring in explicitly, but I've been very interested recently in kind of uh, what I could call comparative studies of meditation. And what sparked this interest was just thinking about the disconnect sometimes that there is between the contemporary mindfulness movement um, and the Buddhist heritage that contributed some of these strategies to the contemporary mindfulness movement. Um, And some of the strategies in that context certainly have been completely decontextualized. You don't need to know anything about Buddhist doctrine in, in order to you know, go to your own therapist and be given certain mindfulness techniques that if you know about it actually do have roots in Buddhist doctrine. But again, you don't need to know any of that or to buy into any of that yourself in order for the techniques to be seen as as effective. Um, And so I was very interested, though, in maybe in what we lose when we decontextualize Mm. Buddhist meditation in the way that we do in the contemporary mindfulness movement or maybe what we gain as well. But so from there, I started looking at differences between Buddhist and Taoist meditation practices. And that's when I was like, oh, wow, this is really interesting and very different because this, you know, Buddhist meditation is often aimed at, it, it's something that maps much more readily, I think, onto the Greek models and some styles of meditation, the early ones that are aimed at uh, insight or, or wisdom, that these are observational methodologies. You're observing your own breath, you're observing your own bodily experiences, you're observing your own thoughts and emotions, you are observing for yourself the imper- their impermanence, you're observing for, your, for yourself the lack of a stable self, right? This is supposed to bring you to a space of what's called right view, uh, and right view is specifically right view on the nature of suffering the cause of suffering, and how to overcome suffering. So Buddhist meditation was very deeply related to this idea of recalling the doctrines to yourself. Again, very much in the way that we think of the Stoics memorizing doctrines in order to recall them to themselves in the moment. This is also very similar to what Buddhism is doing. And then, you know, you read about the Taoist approach to meditation, which really is involves this kind of energy work, relying on a certain assumption again about, like I said, if you dig down, you find these assumptions about what bodies are and what minds are, what matter and and reality is as explanations for why these particular practices are effective. I mentioned the work of Ji Lu Lo. She also does this amazing etymological work on uses of the word emptiness in Chinese traditions, both pre-Buddhist and post-Buddhist. So she does this great work sort of showing that certain conceptions of emptiness come in from India with Buddhist material but certain pre-Buddhist uses of these terms, again, are more or less descriptive terms for a state of primal chi or a state of kind of a, again, like this kind of primal stuff that is not yet differentiated into any one thing or another. And she talks more or less from a talking about this in terms of the cosmological and metaphysical differences. Uh, and I do think though, we see those cosmological and metaphysical differences over disagreements over what emptiness means Play out in the meditation styles that are employed. So I just, and you know, to be perfectly frank, I'm a horrible meditator. I'm very bad at it in, in the Buddhist context, but I really enjoy Qigong. And I really enjoy a lot of kind of mind, body, energy work techniques from the Chinese tradition. I feel like I am I look forward to doing those in a way that I don't look forward to sort of Zen style meditation. Um, and so I think for me, it's just a personal interest. I've wanted to inform myself a little bit more about some of the philosophical background to the practices that I enjoy, that's the background on why I've become interested in how the cosmology plays out in informing the practices that are done and an understanding of why those practices are doing something or affecting something in us.
0: A lot of people say that that the way to look at a lot of these things like religious doctrines is is, uh, mythos rather than logos. In other words, you know, it's not meant to be perhaps like a quasi scientific description. It's, it's a, a myth. But by myth, we don't mean something that's not true. We mean a useful way of looking at things. Now, I'm just wondering whether there's something helpful about <laughs> conceiving of this origin times, because of the way it orients yourself towards the ideas of flux and impermanence and mm-hmm. change. And one of the things I think you're suggesting that you know the, the subject of the talk is about how to, to change your mind. And in the Greek ch- tradition, the o- idea is to change your mind so you can latch on to the absolute truth. It sounds to me like in, in the Chinese tradition you're talking about, changing your mind is actually partly about changing uh, the way in which your mind holds on to its beliefs uh, and, and the way in which goes more open.
1: I do think, you know, to go back to the Greeks, I mean, flux was an indication that something was less than real, right? This idea that if something arises and is only temporary and then passes, it might as well not have existed at all. This is the the rationale for saying, well, there must be then, right? If we see this world of temporary things around us and, and we can understand that they're not self-producing or self-sustaining, then we know there must be something that is not temporary, something that is eternal, that is the foundation for all that exists, right? So that's the rationale is that you they, they looked out at the world of temporary things and said, well, you can't, you know, the, this is this is only half real, right? They're arising from somewhere and going somewhere, and it's it's not a self productive process, and so there has to be something. It has to be some foundation, sort of metaphysical foundation. And I do think that there's just a more. Um, that was not necessarily the response to looking at the world around you and seeing a world of flux and a, and a world of sort of dynamics that are always in temporary and partial relationships with each other, I think that was accepted as, yes, You know, this is the world around us. It is a world of change and a world of flux. And it's not just that we need to train our minds in order to be able to let go of things that we, that we think we know, but there's also a bit of a warning here, which is change is happening. It is inevitable. And the question is, how will you change, right? If you're not able to kind of stay ahead of it a little bit, uh, you will be changed by things more than you will be able to change anything yourself, right? So that goes back to this idea of developing autonomy, right? That we need to develop these skills in order to start to steer the course of things. Otherwise we will easily be overwhelmed, not just by conditions around us, but by our own thoughts and emotions. And so again, that's the kind of very you know sort of Taoist advice with the meditation strategies is, uh, and, and the sort of uh, Ruist advice that we're looking at today with the meditation strategies to precisely stay ahead, ahead of yourself, ahead of your own emotions, ahead of your own own thoughts and feelings. I
0: have to say, you do sound like a great teacher. Um, I think your students sound like (laughs) they're very fortunate indeed. And thank you very much for a a fantastic talk. Thank you for listening. There are plenty more episodes to come in this series, so do subscribe on whichever platform you use leave us a review, and tell your friends about us. You can also watch video versions of all the talks and many more from previous years on the Wall Institute of Philosophy's YouTube channel. And you can sign up to the Institute's newsletters and find out about our live events at wallinstitutephilosophy.org and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.